Welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about part of why Kate is the way she is so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm not Renata. And for this episode, we read two books by R.L. Stein. Joining us to discuss these early 90s horror snooze fests is Sarah, scientist and champagne aficionado. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Sarah is returning to us. She actually lent us her science expertise for a Dan Brown book. And now she is lending us her 90s kid expertise for some Goosebumps books. Only 90s kids would remember. <laughs> so yes, you may have noticed that I am not Renata. I am Becca, who usually edits, who always edits the podcast <laughs> and is still editing the podcast, uh, even with Renata in the sadness cave. So I'll be filling in for her. And I apologize for my summer cold voice, unless you're into it. And then, hey... <laughs> Apparently, so so unrelated to the actual Goosebumps books, apparently they recently made a movie, a Goosebumps movie, that is about, like, R.L. Stein as a character. Is that what it's about? Yes. I kept seeing it and yeah. I couldn't figure out. Yeah, it was like Jack Black played R.L. Stein and, like, I think all <laughs> of the things that... Yeah, Jack was... Black played R.L. Stein and I think <laughs> that, like, the, the characters and monsters he created, like, came alive in his house. Like, you open one of his books and, like, the thing came to life or something. I didn't actually see it, but I kind of, I heard it was, like, fun. Yeah, I actually, that's what, where I was going, was that I actually heard from a bunch of people that it was pretty good and definitely entertaining. And I guess it just went on Netflix. Uh, so, if you're listening to this, maybe check that out, according to people we know on the internet. They have proven uh, correct in the past. It's true. Our, our people on the internet. So, uh, two episodes ago, we did Animorphs, which is a cornerstone of Renata's childhood. Last episode, we talked about the Babysitter's Club, which was a huge part of my childhood. And the other huge part of my childhood was basically anything vaguely scary. Um, I, unsurprising to anyone who knows me now, I got really into horror at a young age. I was super into Goosebumps, super into all of the other, like, young adult-ish, teen-ish horror series by R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike and everyone else who was putting them out back then. Are You Afraid of the Dark was a big thing. Like, basically any horror-related things I could get my hands on. Um, I was also a really quick reader, so I could generally read, like, three or four Goosebumps books in a day, <laughs> uh, which is why I did not own quite as many of those as I owned as, of Babysitter's Club books, because my mother uh, made me take them all out of the library, because that was an expensive habit. Yeah, I remember very clearly. So I also have loved horror since I was a small child, although I would say it's a slightly less defining part of my personality than it is for <laughs> Kate. Um <laughs> It's actually been brought out in spades since um, our friendship began, low those, good Lord, five years ago. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but uh, I was also a quick reader, and I have a very clear memory. So when I was 11, we moved to Florida, and there was this restaurant chain down there. I have no idea how, how widespread it is, but it was called Friendly's. It was a horrible place. Um, <laughs> I am with you on this. Kate would disagree. We would go there and like the service would take forever and the food was kind of crappy, but we would go like after church on, on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights. Um, and they had like a little play area and they had books and stuff. And I very clearly remember seeing 
um, one of the books that we read for this episode, uh, A Night in Terror Tower, and picking it up and reading it cover to cover in the time it took us to eat dinner. I think I had read it before, but that, that memory stuck out to me as I was reading this. I was like, oh, that's right. I remember how quickly these went down. Yeah, and it's crazy because they happen so quickly, but also nothing happens in them. Right? And so it, it's very strange to be like, oh, they made 60 of these and I read them all and nothing ever happens. And they're yeah. so quick and so formulaic, which I didn't even realize until I was reading the R.L. Stein one and I saw that it was exactly 150 pages. The Goosebumps one? Uh, no, the, the that's what you said. The R.L. Stein one. I'm like, they're both R.L. Stein. Oh, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. The Fear Street <laughs> one. Uh, it was exactly 150 pages, um, and I would not be surprised if the Goosebumps was exactly 100 pages. I have an ebook, so I can't check for sure. Uh, but I, I definitely remember that they had these like page numbers that they always hit, and the same was true for Babysitters Club too. But yeah, I definitely like blew through a lot of them. And even though I was also reading the older books, like the R.L. Stein, some of the Fear Street, a lot of, I was more interested in the kind of standalone, not series ones, like the Babysitter ones. I read all five of those fucking Babysitter books that were the same thing that happened over and over again. I didn't understand why that girl kept babysitting. Like, why would you keep doing that? These horrible things keep happening to you. Like, quit. All the Fear Street ones take place in the same town anyway. You can't be a teenager in that town. Like, pack your bags and move away. <laughs> Sound advice always. Uh, but they were, they were definitely a stepping stone for me into Stephen King. I started reading Stephen King when I was probably about 11 or 12. But that was kind of like my first... I read through all those, and I'm like, these aren't scary enough. And my mother was a huge Stephen King fan and had copies of all of his books, or many of his books at that point. And she was like, all right, we'll try this. And that was scarier. And also, there were more bad words and sex. Um, and they were much longer, but still not very much happened. So this is basically all my experience, too, in a way, except I didn't like it. <laughs> Kate came out the other side being like, I still love it. And I got sick of all the boredom. <laughs> I started reading the Goosebumps books, but I think I was like ever so slightly too old for them at that point. Like if I was reading these when I was like nine, I would have been into them. But I was probably like 11 and I didn't care. So my neighbor had a bunch of the Fear Street books and I borrowed those. And even though they were still kind of like a little meh to me, I read them just because they were available and didn't cost any money, which was always a plus for my mom as well. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I think probably in the back, I don't know if they were the same publisher or whatnot, there was one of those like, if you like these books, try Christopher Pike. And I was like, oh, there's tons of Christopher Pike books at the library. And I started reading those. And I was like, oh, these are a little older, a little sexier. They're all kind of like 17 or 18. I'm into this. <laughs> and I loved those books. And then once I kind of transitioned out of those, I tried to read Stephen King. And I was like, you are so tedious and boring still. I'm just going to give up. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> but yeah. I watched the Scream movies 900 times instead. <laughs> well, that was that was a good life choice. Yeah. Still still a life choice I make on the regs. Yeah, for sure. My Stephen King story, I'll tell it quickly, is, um, God, I must have been, uh, I don't know, 13, 14, something like, somewhere in that area. And I got a copy of The Shining. And uh, 
I think it was the first and possibly still to this point, one of the only Stephen King books I've read. And uh, as I mentioned before, you know, we went to church three times a week and I went to a Christian high school and um, I grew up very religious and very, and in high school I was very much a goody two shoes. So as I read The Shining, I marked out all of the cuss words <laughs> and, uh, and um, all of the suggestive material or anything because I didn't want to pollute my mind. But I also very clearly remember after reading the infamous bathtub scene, having to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night the next night and just like being afraid to open the the shower curtain just in case because if if it was there and I didn't look at it and it couldn't get me <laughs> that is the the true tenet of monsters in your bedroom even now as an adult if you don't look for it and keep your feet covered by the blanket it won't come after you oh my god I'm sorry this is like tangent sitting you can cut it all out I don't care but this is very funny when I was when I was a small kid, I used to do that. You know, I'd, I'd have a pillow over my head. I'd be completely covered so that you couldn't see me, um, because I had to leave the door open because I was afraid of the dark. But I was like, if I'm covered, you can't get me. And the number one thing that I was afraid of coming into my room and getting me was, for some reason, Wolverine. <laughs> That's legit. Um, that is the greatest story for this podcast ever. Thank you. I wish Renata was here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I figured it was appropriate. I know. I do, too. I feel, I feel like she would appreciate that. But it was like full 90s cartoon glory Wolverine. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. All he's going to do is say bub at you. <laughs> I didn't know that then. <laughs> he's probably just looking for beer, which I imagine you did not have in your bedroom. Uh, no, not in the house. There you go. He would have just moved on to the neighbors. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, uh, much like the Babysitter's Club, which we were talking about last time, Goosebumps back in its prime, I think it started, like, 1993, and then kept going through, like, the mid to late 90s. And I know they tried to reboot it in 2000, and it didn't do as well with Goosebumps 2000, quote-unquote. But it was, similar to Babysitter's Club, it was a huge, ginormous franchise. There were, like, a bazillion spin-off series of both this and Fear Street. There was Goosebumps merchandise everywhere. There was a Goosebumps TV show. There was Goosebumps-related everything that you could think of. Interestingly, in contrast to the Babysitter's Club, from everything I can find online, despite the fact that all of this was happening... R.L. Stein was still writing the majority of the core Goosebumps and Fear Street books. All of the spinoff series seemed to be ghostwritten, like The Ghosts of Fear Street and Give Yourself Goosebumps and Goosebumps Horrorland and all of that. But the actual Goosebumps branded books and Fear Street branded books seem to all have been written by him. At least that's what he claims, and while he, because he's so quick to credit the ghostwriters for all of those other books, I can only imagine that, you know, and there's nothing, nothing I could find online would indicate otherwise either. So he, he claimed that he could write a Goosebumps book in seven days and a Fear Street book in ten days, which... Having read them see, sounds legit. Yeah, seeing how quick and formulaic and poorly written they are, I 100% buy it. I always, like, I haven't written anything in a long time, because I'm like, I'm a crappy writer. 
And then I'm like, I could be a millionaire, though. Yeah. I could just write a million crappy books and people would buy them. <laughs> yeah, if you can sne- sneak into, you know, that little, that niche that needs to be filled, which apparently in the early 90s we wanted to be scared, but not too scared. <laughs> If you wanted to be really scared, you just watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. I had yeah. recurring nightmares about some episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? We recently rewatched all of them because they're on Netflix and they're still amazing. They are great. Yeah. They're so good. And Gary yeah. is now a weatherman and that makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so happy if Gary was my weatherman. <laughs> Oh, oh gosh. All right, so let's move on to very quickly just summarizing these. Uh, as we said, nothing much happens in them, so it probably won't take very long. Uh, we'll start with, because uh, I don't think we've actually said which two books we read. We read... Why would you need to? They're <laughs> all the same. Uh, the Night and Terror Tow- Tower. That's the title, right? I have no idea. Yes, that is the title. Uh, which is a Goosebumps book. It was number 12 of the original run. No, it was number... I've got class, classic Goosebumps number 12 in my... Yeah, because that was when it was re-released. It was released as classic number 12. But it was originally, I think, maybe in the 30s or something. I don't know. Not important. Not important. Number 27. Thank you. 27. There we go. This book opens up with uh, Sue and Eddie, who are... Two kids who are on a tour bus in London. Their parents are Once again, abandoned by their parents who love them. (laughs) Their parents are in a meeting, which is all that it is referred to. And they had given Sue and Eddie some money and sent them on a tour to entertain themselves for the day. Uh, After doing a bunch of boring museums, the tour takes them to Terror Tower. Having been to London last year and looking at what they did... Like, before lunch, it's fucking impossible. They, like, went to the lobby of the museum and went, and this is the museum, next stop. Which, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know, like, that that whole, like, the first, like, page or two of the book is just, like, here's a laundry list of things in London that we did, which were, I can tell you right now also that a 12-year-old like Sue, because in children's books they're always very careful to tell you their ages, Sue is 12 and Eddie is 10, and the difference between the two of them is huge as far as Sue is concerned. But, like, the way she talked about and remembered details of the places that they went, like, have you ever been a 12-year-old on a tour bus? You're born out of your mind. (laughs) Also, like, my parents barely allowed me at age 31 to go to London (laughs) and to go do things on my own. Who lets their 12-year-old and 10-year-old loose in London? Well, spoiler alert. <laughs> Listen, I'm maintaining the fantasy until we goddamn get there. Okay. Because that's what the fucking book did. So they, uh, they, they end up at Terror Tower, which was an old Roman fort that was turned into a debtor's prison and then turned into a torture chamber. And uh, while they're touring the tower... They start to hear a story about a prince and princess who were killed, who were held in the tower, named Edward and Susanna. Just a coincidence. Just coincidence. No, don't pay attention to that. Um, and as the tour goes on, Sue notices that there's a man in a black cloak who's following them. And when the rest of the people in the tour file out, 
he confronts them and kind of corners them in one of the rooms and starts chasing them, going after them. So they freak out and they run away and they run through the sewers and eventually manage to get out. There's a thing with three smooth stones. Like the guy, he's insisting that he they know why he's after them and he keeps like trying to pull out these stones and like do something. Which is kind of funny, Anacott, because he keeps trying to stack these stones and without any explanation of what's going on, you're just like, are you okay? Are you good, buddy? Um, so they, they manage to get out of the tower. Their tour has already left without them. So they get a cab back to their hotel, except when they get to the hotel and they get up to their room, they realize they don't have a room key. So the maid lets them in, but there's no one and no baggage in the room. When they go downstairs to the desk to ask, Hey, what's up? Why is all our stuff gone? Um, the desk people at the desk tell them that there's no meeting at the the hotel, that the quote unquote meeting that their parents are a part of doesn't exist. And no one's checked into that room. No one's checked into that room. They don't know what's going on. And Sue and Eddie, when asked for their last name, cannot come up with what their last name is. Yeah. And the thing that's like incredible to me about this is that this is chapter 15 of the book. Holy and this God. is the first the first time that Sue has finally been able to admit to herself that something weird is happening. Like the way that this 12 year old calmly rationalizes to herself the whole time. She's like, Oh, I'm sure that the bus just left without us. Oh, I'm sure that they just cleaned the room. Oh, I'm sure that mom and dad just moved the room. Like she keeps making up these excuses. I was like, you're a 12 year old stranded in an unfamiliar city and without your parents, like you would have been like sitting on the floor crying and rocking like, (laughs) you know, 12 chapters ago. So the people at the hotel very graciously put them in the restaurant to eat. Um, And while they're doing that, they notice the taxi driver who drove them to the hotel, who they promised they would pay once they found their parents, is in the hotel looking for them. So they rush out of the restaurant into a back door to get away from him who they tried to pay, but when she pulled out the money, he was like, that's not real money, that's play money, which will come into play later. When they're in this, like, back room of the restaurant, the guy in the black cloak comes back, and we learn that Eddie has pickpocketed him and stolen the three smooth stones that he kept trying to stack, and promises that he'll give them back if the guy leaves them alone, and of course he doesn't, and... When they next, they kind of black out or white out or something. And when they open their eyes again, the hallway that had been bright before is dark. Uh, there's these guys in cloaks who are telling them not to leave the abbey. They don't know what's going on. They uh, spy a big party being had down below them where everybody's in these weird old-timey costumes and eating with their hands on these weird wooden tables And they immediately assume it's cosplay. Yes. Uh, They run out into the street and are shocked to discover not only is it suddenly afternoon, but they're in old-timey London. It's not real London anymore. It's all people in old-timey clothes and all of the buildings and everything are gone and they freak out. And uh, the long and short of it is they both end up getting captured by the guy in the black cloak while they're running around the streets of old-timey London trying to find people who will believe them. 
and they end up at the Terror Tower and surprise, surprise, discover that they are Edward and Susanna who have been sent to the future in order to stop from being executed uh, by the sorcerer to the king, their dead father. Uh, his brother had killed the king and queen and taken over for them, and now he wants to kill Edward and Susanna. So the sorcerer had, in a last-ditch effort to save them, sent them to the future with his magic time-traveling stones. And erased their memories and gave them just enough to go on. So that's why they had names and, and a vague idea of what they were doing there. And that's why they had ye old timey money. Yes. He claims that he can't send them back again because reasons that are never really clearly explained. Because then when they're being sent to be executed, Edward pickpockets the stones again and is able to send them and the sorcerer back to the future to live happy lives as a family in the 20th century. The end. The yeah, end. the end. <laughs> Yeah, I was really entertained that he was just like, I cannot. He's like crying that he couldn't send them back. I can't send you back into the future. I've seen this movie before. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it was just totally fine. He didn't even care when he up there again. And I just, yeah, there was no explanation as to it. He just, I think he was like worried, like if he sent him again, then he would be punished. Yeah, that was. But it's like, how come they're going to find out again if you already did it once? Just pretend that it stuck, magic magician, wizard guy. Like, pretend they didn't come back again. Oh, yeah. And the only reason that it it got messed up is because the executioner saw it happen. And he stole the stones and figured out the spell and followed them. Oh, I meant to, like, look up what the spell actually meant, because it was that sad Latin that <laughs> oh, is yeah, used like, for magic for everything. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And apparently you don't have, like, you just have to say the words. Like, there's no, like, innate magic ability no, or anything. No, he's going to stack some stones and say some words. We'll consult yeah. with our, uh, our Latin people and uh, put a translation up on the website. Yeah. But yes, the whole the whole plot and like it was the nice thing of uh, in a book like this where in the very beginning Eddie is shown pickpocketing his sister like seven times so that you're sure to get the the, the clue that Eddie just like is a klepto apparently <laughs> Chekhov's pickpocketing yeah Chekhov's <laughs> pickpocketing um, because then he, he pickpockets the executioner and then he pickpockets the wizard and all of that so. Yeah, it was the other the other great thing. So there's that telegraphing. The ending obviously is very clearly telegraphed in like chapter two when they're like, oh, poor Edward and Susanna, who were the pr prince and princess who were killed. And they don't even think that's weird. Whenever I meet another person on the street named Caitlin, I think it's weird. Like, but they don't think it's weird that the prince and princess had their exact names, but whatever. I think that. I think that's just the thing with you. I don't necessarily think it's strange when somebody else has my name. But do you notice it? I go, oh, they have the same name as me. Every fifth person in America who was born in the 80s is named Sarah, so. Well, I mean, if you met, if you were to meet somebody whose name was Becca and she had a brother whose name, I just might totally blank out your brother's name. That's it. Go ahead. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> if, if you met someone named Rebecca and you found out that they had a brother named You said ben, my brother's name, the hackers are going to come after you now. <laughs> Would that ping in your head? I'd be like, oh, <laughs> I wouldn't think it was me. 
I also don't think when I narrowly avoid accidents that another Caitlin in another universe has died. <laughs> so I really think maybe this is just connected to you. <laughs> I'll delete that so no one knows your shame. It's fine. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was funny about their names is that when they, like, these kids are the least willing to accept what is happening around them. And like when they're like, we're ba-, like the, the sorcerer is telling them that they're really Ed and Suzanne or Edward and Susanna before he gives them back their memories. They're like, no, I'm not Edward. I'm Eddie. I was like, you, you do get that. Those aren't different, right? Yeah. And they're both doing it. It's like, I was like, those things aren't as different as you want them to be, hun. Yeah. The other great hallmark of Goosebumps books that was in these books is that every single chapter ends on a cliffhanger and 90% of them are immediately resolved in the next chapter as like, just a turn of phrase. Yeah, they're all scare- set up as scary cliffhangers. Yeah. Like, oh no, we're being attacked. And then it was like, oh, it was just my best friend hugging me from behind. Yeah, it is yeah. exactly like, oh my god, like, we're trapped in here forever. Oh no, wait, you know, end of chapter, chapter two. Oh, I was turning the doorknob the wrong way. Like, every, <laughs> there are a couple of them that are like, you know, an actual like, oh, you know, and then I blacked out and it was because the guy kidnapped me or something like but that. But it's not but... like until halfway through the book. Yeah. Right. It took yeah. forever for anything legitimately concerning to actually happen. Yeah. yeah they're all like, they're all um, fake outs. And then I have to wonder if, if part of it is not like the idea that when you're when you're younger and you're reading your first chapter books, like if you're reading them with your parents and you're reading like a chapter at a time, right? I could see maybe, but still it's like every single chapter. And I remember talking about on the Dan Brown episode that he does that to great effect because it makes you keep turning the pages, but his aren't, I will give it to him that his are not usually resolved in the first three words on the next (laughs) page. (laughs) <laughs> the next three words of each chapter are, just kidding. <laughs> gotcha. It was a very Goosebumps thing. Like, I think that that is, you know, because I can see, like, as a 10-year-old, you know, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old reading these books being like, oh, like, like getting getting the joke of it almost, like, understanding that, like, oh, every single one of these cliffhangers isn't a cliffhanger, but, like, kind of at the same time, like, being into it. You know, I, I think it's a it's a thing that definitely, like, is more effective when you're eight than it is as an adult. Right. Well, and then the other thing that it does, if you're not super aware that that's what's happening, is that it trains you to think that the danger isn't real. And then when it is real, you know, it's a surprise. Yeah. Which I guess is the normal way that cliffhangers work. <laughs> like, you just assume that everything is fine. And then one time it isn't. <laughs> I did notice it to a similar degree, just without the jokes, in the Fear Street book. He definitely ends all his chapters on, like, dramatic, like, and then it wasn't necessarily as big of a cliffhanger, and it wasn't the joke, but there was still always just, like, it wasn't like a chapter ended when a scene ended. A chapter would end middle of a scene on, like, super dramatic discoveries or dramatic lines, and then it would just pick up next chapter, still in the middle of that scene, but working to resolve it suddenly. Yeah. So I guess that's a good enough lead-in to say that the second book that we read was Fear Street number 35 called The Face. Yeah. This one, um, 
I sort of remembered having read as a kid, but didn't remember huge parts of it. Um, for some reason, like, reading the whole beginning part, I barely remembered any of it. Like, I, I thought that I hadn't read it before. And then I got to a point, like, three quarters of the way through, where I was like, oh no, I remember the scene for scene. But then I stopped remembering it, so I thought an entirely different person was the bad guy. But but we'll get to we'll get to why. But everyone was the bad guy, <laughs> so it's fine. Uh, yes. So the face opens with Martha Powell, who is just your normal average girl in high school, who has a huge chunk of her memory missing ever since the quote unquote accident that happened sometime in November when she was out with her friends. They have all been changed by the accident. But Martha is the only one who lost her memory. And I do want to point out, because this book, like, I actually suggested this book when we were looking for R.L. Stein books to read, because a couple of images from it stood out, like, so clearly in my memory. Um, and one of them was from the prologue, which is that Martha keeps dreaming that she is drawing this perfectly straight, bright, silvery line over and over, and then all of a sudden halfway through drawing the line, the silver line turns red and starts dripping down the page. So that was like, that was an image that stuck like super hard in, in baby Sarah's brain. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's uh, interesting because there's a lot of bits like that where there's like a very stark image surrounded by a lot of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this accident had happened. Martha's lost her memory. Her boyfriend, Aaron, seems, like, completely just unaffected by anything. Her friend, Justine, is flirting with Aaron all the time now, and she doesn't know why or when that started. Her other friend, Adriana, isn't sleeping, and her she's a straight-A student, and her grades are suffering. Uh, their friend, Laura, like, I don't know if something's up with her, too. Basically, like, all her friends are fucked up because of this accident. She can't remember anything, and she, her friends were told by her psychiatrist, everyone was told by her psychiatrist, not to say anything to Martha, to help her get her memory back, to let it happen on her own. Not to tell her what happened, not to imply what happened, not to let her know anything surrounding the accident, so that she can get her memory back organically. Yes. And also, um... Did you mention Adriana has a brother named Ivan? Yes. And he is starting to act like like he's hanging he's running with the wrong crowd and he's got all this stuff going on and and he's acting out and getting in fights and driving erratically and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so everyone's a mess. Martha's like double a mess. She is an artist theoretically and she needs to get a portfolio together and for some reason cannot use any drawings she already has, so she has to draw all new drawings in two weeks. But every time she sits down to draw something, she just draws the same face. Uh, it's not a face that she can remember ever seeing before. It's a handsome boy about her age with a scar over his eyebrow and a dimpled chin and... And a round mole on his cheek. Yes. And she can't stop drawing it. Like, even when she's not paying attention or not intending to draw things, she just draws this face over and over again. Uh, and she's freaking out. And when she shows it to her friends, they freak out and they won't tell her why. And she really just wants to get her memories back, but they're so elusive. 
and like nothing fucking happens in this one for a while either. Uh, she finds out Justine and Aaron are acting all weird around each other, and it turns out it's because he's cheating on her with Justine. That has nothing to do with anything. That's just a nope. thing that happens in the book that is not tied into the plot at all. They do at least unfold small bits of the plot along the way, which is barely enough to keep you going. But one of the things is they decide to go sledding because it's all, it's still winter. And like she hops on the sled and goes sliding down the hill and starts like hysterically screaming and freaking out for reasons that she doesn't understand. But like the idea, but something about like, being in the snow and everything just like freaks her out. And like multiple times she just has like these complete meltdown episodes. Like they go to a basketball game and suddenly every face on the team looks like the face of the boy she's been drawing. So she keeps having these like random meltdown episodes. And like, it's, you know, instead of like talking to her doctor about it or anything, like everybody's just like, Oh, I guess you're better now. Yeah. How, how, how you doing? She, um, she starts to get back like these little kernels of her memory um, she remembers the guy with the face. Uh, she remembers being at a cabin with all of her friends in the snow. Um, she remembers the guy with the face trying to kiss her and, like, fighting him off because she didn't want him to kiss her. And she Oh, and remembered... his name. The perfect 90s hot boy name, Sean. Yeah, so eventually she she's in the car at one point with Ivan, Justine's brother, who she's been friends with for a long time and used to have a crush on. And he's, like, melting down and hysterical and almost crashes them into a tree. And Tries to intentionally crash them into yes, a tree. Well, intentionally tries to kill them by crashing the car into And then a stops tree. last second. And stops last second and apologizes to her. Everyone's just, like, fucking off the wall. Justine, because she's not sleeping, is seeing a Everyone is having exactly the traumatic response you would expect this sort of thing to happen. Except in the real world, someone would have stepped in and helped these children. But instead, it's a book. So the doctor's decision was, Martha needs to remember on her own. And everyone went along with it, and no one cared. And there was no police involvement. Whatever. Apparently the whole town, the newspapers, everyone No one talking about it. just accepted this. Yeah, so Justine, uh, because she's not sleeping, or Adriana, because she's not sleeping, she's seeing a hypnotist who's helping her teach her how to hypnotize herself so she can sleep. Again, super 90s slash 50s. (laughs) Was hypnotism ever actually a thing? I don't think so. And eventually, all of the memories come back to... Martha, and she remembers being at the cabins on a ski slope with all of her friends and this boy, Sean, and they were all sledding for a while, and they decided to switch and go skiing instead, and they had encouraged her to go skiing down the hill first because uh, Adriana said, oh, well, you won the sledding contest, you should go first, but she was having trouble with her skis, so Sean went first. And as he was skiing down, there was a wire strung between two trees, and it decapitated him. And his body kept skiing without his head for a while, which they make sure to point out. (laughs) This is the other very stark visual that stuck with small Sarah. (laughs) Yes. It was pretty, like, there's, every once in a while, they just drop something like that, and you're like, oh... Um, so Martha's freaking out and Adriana calls her and she, you know, says like, I remembered everything. And Adriana says, oh, I'm coming over immediately. And Martha goes into her closet and finds the duffel bag she had packed from the ski trip. And there's wire inside of it. 
so she thinks that she killed him. And then Ivan shows up and he's like, no, you didn't kill him. I killed him. I had put the wire up at ankle height because he knew that I stole a car and he was blackmailing me. And I just wanted to. So I just wanted to chop his feet off. (laughs) Yeah. Like. (laughs) Which is a normal measured response. To trip and fall. And I was like, dude, your anatomy classes failed you. (laughs) I mean, it'd be more physics of, like, the speed of a thing probably means slicey, slicey, not stumble, stumble. <laughs> uh, so he, he's like, oh, like, I, I tied it at ankle height, but probably the snow shifted, so it got up to neck height. Four feet of snow vanished overnight, <laughs> like snow does. And uh, through all of this, it eventually comes out that he didn't do it either. It was Adriana. Adriana saw that he had put the wire at ankle height and had spied Sean uh, assaulting, essentially, Martha earlier when he was trying to kiss her and she was trying to fight him off and telling him that she didn't want to kiss him. And she was enraged because she had dibs on Sean because she saw him first and how dare Martha do this. So she had moved the wire up to neck height and encouraged Martha to go first, but because she's so inept at skiing, Sean got ahead of her and got decapitated by the wire. And how this even all comes out, like, these books, a chapter is like two and a half pages. So we have the chapter where Martha discovers the duffel bag with the wire, and she goes, holy shit, I killed Sean. The next chapter, Ivan shows up and is like, no. I killed Sean. <laughs> then at the end of that chapter, Adriana is like, why are you ruining this? Martha killed Sean. Don't ruin everything I've done. And then the beginning of the next chapter is, I killed Sean. Or probably, let's be real, the last sentence of that chapter is, I killed Sean. And then the chapter, next chapter starts with an explanation of what that means. And it wasn't a joke this time. They weren't <laughs> fake murders, fun kid murders, like the Goosebump books. Yeah. So, like, within, like, six pages, three people confess to this murder, and it's ridiculous. And these are, like, six of the last 12 pages of the book. Yep. Right. Like, there's no, re- like, it's just, like, the answer. Bye. <laughs> Which I, it was part of my annoyance, I remember, with these books when I was reading them when I was younger. Like, as soon as it started, and I know, like, this is how any amnesia book really plays out, but as soon as it started with, like, not since the accident, this unexplained accident, I was just like, can we not? Can we (laughs) please just tell the whole story and not do this? But we had to, so, because of a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. After, After all of those revelations, Adriana picks up the wire from duffel bag which she apparently planted there and knocks out her brother and then goes to try and kill Martha but before she can do it she sees all of the drawings that Martha has done of Sean's face and gets like transfixed by it so she stops trying to kill Martha Ivan comes to and restrains her and that's literally the end of the book oh did we mention that Adriana was the one hypnotizing her to lose her memory? Right, right, yes. Uh, Adriana was hypnotizing her to make sure that she remained amnesia, am, am, that she still didn't have a memory. <laughs> it's cool, I'm an adult. Educated. Uh, that she still didn't have a memory so that she could continue this fiction of who all actually this. killed Sean. All, yes. all this nonsense. This whole elaborate whatever the fuck. 
This was like the shittiest version of the end of a Hercule Poirot novel where he goes around the room and he convinces you in turn that every person did it until finally telling you the right one. <laughs> this is like the crappiest version of that. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's how that one ends. Just real abruptly like that. With I- Ivan and Martha in each other's arms. Yes. Which I don't know how he was still restraining Adriana, but apparently he was. Yeah. Like three sentences earlier, he no, was holding both like, her wrists, and then also Martha was in his arms. Yeah, and I guess the whole Justine being like jealous and hitting on Aaron, like I like, was a red herring to make you think maybe Justine had it out for Martha. I don't know. I I'm guess. just so mad because like that is such a macabre way to die. That is such a ridiculous murder to pull off, and it deserved better. <laughs> <laughs> like. I want to take, uh, I think that's really what baby Sarah fixated on. Like it was the, 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 the silver line erupting into blood and that gruesome as all oh, fuck murder and turn it into a story that like deserved it. <laughs> and also just from like a even vaguest notion of reality, what did the cops do when they found this dead body that had been decapitated and they just let all these teenagers go and live their lives and being like, well, maybe when Martha remembers what happened, <laughs> we'll solve this grisly murder of a 16-year-old boy. Like, everyone just got to... No one went to jail. No one... There's no trial. There's... They're just... Yeah, it's fine. There's just a dead guy and no one's saying anything. So I guess that wire... Like, like... Because clearly, like, there was a murder... It was clearly someone put wire up and he lost his head and no one cares. Yeah. No one wants to pursue that. It's one of those, where are your parents? Which is, it's something that I know we talk about all the time on the podcast and we talk about it again, which is that that is definitely a thing that you have to take into account when you're writing a middle grade or young adult novel is that you need to, you can't have adults show up to solve everything. So you need to put work into coming up with a reason why. Right. Like, I don't they even. They won't be there to solve things. No, that, like, because the parents couldn't solve it. Yeah. But, like, and I don't know what the parents would have played, but, like, the legal system still exists. Yes. Even in children's books. And they, they I lo- would let them do this whole thing and do this whole murder happens. But there's still repercussions somewhere along the way. And the fact that no one cared (laughs) like even when shitty kids die you have to find justice (laughs) yeah it's 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 a book this was certainly a book that we read that you read how many how many of these books are there you read 900 times over probably because there was another one it's funny i was seeing all the titles and there was one that was like ski vacation and i'm like that's probably just the same book with the names (laughs) changed and no amnesia (laughs) Somebody else got murdered skiing. <laughs> I so the one the goosebumps that I remember having read the most is Ghost Beach. I think is what it was, which is the one where these people are these kids are visiting their aunt and uncle, and they meet up with these kids and these other kids on the beach, and they hang out with them, and they think that the kids are ghosts, but then they think their aunt and uncle are ghosts, and then it turns out that the aunt, uncle, and them are ghosts. And the kids are real alive kids, and I don't know. I read it like fifty times. I don't remember most of them. I remember, I remember the dummy one because, like, that still fucked me up a little in my soul. Because there's one scene where the dummy is under the bed and she's standing, 
next to the, but I don't even know if it was a girl or a boy in those books, but like the dummy reaches out from under the bed and grabs her ankle and for, I won't say years, I'll say decades <laughs> after that book, if I was in like a half awake state coming back from the bathroom, I would run and jump into my bed, not stand next to my bed, lest anything reach out and grab me, which is like a very base child fear that everyone has without those books. But like, I was like, nah, that dummy book. And then there was another one that I just remembered reading that I know I read a few times, but I can't remember fully the conceit of, but it was something like there was a magic mirror and they could go into the mirror and like visit the mirror world or something but like then they realized that when they went in like uh, an evil mirror of them came out I'll have to vaguely remember that one kind of screwed me up too like just like I found that as a conceit spooky I don't really care about ghost aunts and uncles I'm like sure ghosts but like that was like messed up my brain a little bit and I actually found kind of scary yeah, the, the ghost speech one, that twist, I just, it was less like, oh, I found this. No, 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 sure, more, sure. This is really interesting because this is the first time I've ever seen a twist like this in right. fiction. Right. Just that these are always marketed as like spooky books, yeah. and I didn't quite find them spooky. I found them as just as ridiculous as we found this Tower Terror book. Yeah, and like the books that I remember reading, I well, I very clearly remember the cover of Say Cheese and Die. I don't remember anything about the book, really. So does Renata. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say, I do remember what happens in the book. There is no skeleton barbecue, much to, I'm sure, Renata's dismay. (laughs) I also just, I was just looking at, because the the TV series, um, the Goosebumps TV series is on Netflix, and apparently Ryan Gosling was in the episode of Say Cheese and Die. (laughs) So that's awesome. I remember the thing that I really remember, and I I rewatched this episode of the Goosebumps TV show in like my first year of grad school. But um, the one about the mask, like the 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 girl who's getting picked on, puts on the mask and becomes like angry and scary and everything. All I remember is that they put worms on her sandwich. Yes, that's the haunted mask. Yes, the haunted mask, which is a, a true classic, I yes. think, of the of it the definitely, series. You could tell the ones that were like the real like crowd pleasers because they got sequels there were like 19 night of the living dummies and like three monster bloods and like three haunted masks and terror tower had a second one i think i think there was like return to terror tower i could be wrong yeah wait we're another time traveling (laughs) couple of kids there was also there was also an episode of the tv show about about terror tower and i think it was better than the book i watched it last night and actually, it is almost a, I don't know about word for word. I was, yeah, was going to say, I was watching the captioning out of the corner of my eye while listening to other things. And what I did see, I was like, this is verbatim. Yeah, like it, it I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it was exactly word for word, but it was pretty, pretty close. damn close. The <laughs> one major difference that I noticed, which you couldn't have done in the book because of point of view is that at the end, after they run off as a happy family, the man in the black cloak also they, time travels they, back. They pan away, and then there's the man in the black cloak. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Excellent. Uh, but uh, the the television series, I did remember once I put it on that theme song, it was not did not stick with me as much as the Babysitter's Club one. I didn't remember the theme song, but when I saw that G floating yeah. around and then going to the door, and the door opens, and there's a house in the door, and I was like, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. I never liked these books. <laughs> I 
design introduces right one, and right. you know why they hire jack black to play him in a movie and it is because he is a terrible He's a nightmare actor. he is <laughs> Like maybe that was like the scariest part of the episode. <laughs> just not at all a very good at at acting. Not <laughs> at all. Oh, Monster Blood! I remember that from a Scholastic book fair. I bought a copy of Monster Blood that had a, a thing of goo that came with it that was supposed to be the Monster Blood. <laughs> I uh, when I was at uh, Heroes Con with Sarah <laughs> a couple months ago. I ended up buying a print. I kept walking by this one artist's table and there was a print that was very striking to me that was very creepy of like a staircase and in shadow and in the shadow you can make out the outline of a ghost girl. And uh, I ended up eventually, I was like, I have to buy this. Becca won't let me hang it anywhere she can see it, but I need to have it. And when I stopped to talk to the artist, Rebecca Mock is the artist it was written for, it was drawn for a Goosebumps fanzine, and it is actually an illustration from an exact scene in the first Goosebumps book, Welcome to the Dead House. Nice. So it is interesting what from these books stays with us. I'll see if I can link to at least that illustration, if not the actual fanzine, on the notes, the show notes. But uh, do we have anything else to say about Goosebumps and Fear Street? Oh, um, the, the one other thing that I was going to mention was... The books were boring, blah, blah, blah. The writing style was, like, mind-numbing. Because it is just, like, a couple thousand short declarative sentences stacked up on each other. And, like, and I was asking Kate earlier, because I don't read a ton of middle grade. I don't read a ton of anything because grad school has ruined my will to live and be happy. Um, But... Like, I asked if that style was common because, you know, these are younger readers. The short sentences are easy and everything. But... Uh, yeah, oh there, it, it's it's interesting because we were discussing the same thing with the Babysitter's Club books, how they also are written in these, like, short declarative sentences, not a lot of variation. And the same with even the Fear Street, same thing, you know, short sentences. And, you know, for those who don't read a lot of middle grade, the answer is no, not all middle grade and young adult books are written that way. You know, frequently they're written very beautifully. But I imagine all of the series books that I could think of, like thinking back to the Nancy Drews that I read and the Boxcar Children, and we even talked about it when we were talking about the Animorphs and um, stuff that I read as an adult when I was selling books, that is how they were written. So I can only imagine that's like scholastic house style for these uh, books that are written largely by committee. Yeah. I got to tell you, with my current eyes, I was just like, oh, kill me. It was it was not fun. It did make me appreciate, though, the... I, I always understood it, you know, sort of naturally from doing, from writing, but just, like, how much of a gift it is to your reader when you vary sentence structure. <laughs> it's like a little present you give them. All right. Any other thoughts about Goosebumps or Fear Street? Nope. All right. Then uh, let's move on to dramatic readings. Uh, our first dramatic reading is going to be from The Face. Sarah is going to give a little bit of an example of these short declarative sentences and the part of every 90s pulpy middle grade and young adult book where the protagonist describes themselves and everyone around them. So uh, take it away, Sarah. I've had strange thoughts since the accident last fall. I can't help it. Dr. Sale says it's perfectly normal. That's me, Martha Powell perfectly normal. 
I guess I look normal enough. I'm average and I weigh about 120, about right for a high school junior. I'm kind of preppy looking. I'm more J. Crew than grunge. I have blonde hair, long and very straight. Olive eyes, big and round. My best feature. And light freckles on my cheeks that make me look about 12 years old. I guess I have a nice smile. I don't smile as much as I used to. But despite my weird thoughts, despite the holes in my brain, I guess I look okay. I'm not beautiful and dark and exotic looking like Adriana. And I'd love to have Justine's thick tangles of red hair, her full red lips, and her round, pale blue eyes. But I look okay. At least Aaron thinks so. Good old Aaron. He's been so loyal to me. So caring. I don't know what I would do without him. I'm so lucky that I've been going with him for so long. Justine reminds me just how lucky I am nearly every day. She's a good friend, but she doesn't try to hide her jealousy. Aaron is so great, Justine gushed a few afternoons ago. Check out that bod. Justine, give me a break, I groaned. At least Justine is honest about it. She doesn't try to hide how much she likes Aaron. She's always flirting with him, even though he's my boyfriend. He flirts back sometimes, you know, kids around with her. But I don't think he takes her seriously. As I said, he's been so loyal to me, so wonderful. All of my friends have been wonderful. If only they wouldn't walk on tiptoes around me. If only they wouldn't be so careful of what they say. I know what they're thinking about. I know what's on their minds. They probably wonder if my memory has snapped back, but they're afraid to ask. They won't ask about that week last November, about the accident. They never talk about it in front of me. Maybe they don't want to remember it either. Maybe they think I'm the lucky one. Maybe they wish they could lose their memories too. But I don't think I'm so lucky because the questions are driving me crazy. What happened that night? How horrible was it? And why was I the one who went into shock. Yep. I, and I, I tried to emphasize for you how many of those sentences with like conjunctions in the middle were separate <laughs> sentences. And also how many of those fragment sentences were their own paragraph. All of them. All of All them. Of them. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's how you make things dramatic. It's Apparently. true. All right. Our next dramatic reading is going to be from uh, the Terror Tower book. It's going to be an example of some of these uh, random dramatic cliffhangers. For this one, I will be reading the part of Sue and the narration. Sarah will be reading the part of Eddie. And Becca will be reading the part of Mr. Stark's The Tour Guide. Look at these. Eddie urged, pushing me towards the display shelf. What are these? Thumb screws. Mr. Starks replied, stepping up behind us. He picked one up. It looks like a ring. See, it slides down over your thumb like this. He slid the wide metal ring over his thumb. Then he raised his hand so we could see clearly. There is a screw in the side of the ring. Turn the screw and it digs its way into your thumb. Keep turning it and it digs deeper and deeper. Ouch, I declared. Very nasty. Mr. Starks agreed, setting the thumbscrew back on the display shelf. This is a whole room of very nasty items. I can't believe people were actually tortured with this stuff. Eddie murmured. His voice trembled. He really didn't like scary things, especially when they were real. 
Wish I had a pair of these to use on you, I teased. Eddie is such a wimp. Sometimes I can't help myself. I have to give him a hard time. I reached behind the rope barrier and picked up a pair of metal handcuffs. They were heavier than I imagined, and they had a jagged row of metal spikes all around the inside. Sue, put those down! Eddie whispered frantically. I slipped one around my wrist. See, Eddie, when you clamp it shut, the jagged spikes cut into your wrist, I told him. I let out a startled gasp as the heavy metal cuff clicked shut. Ow! I screamed, tugging frantically at it. Eddie, help! I can't get it off! It's cutting me! It's cutting me! To explain to the audience, that's the end of chapter four, and now we're going into the first part of chapter five. Oh! A horrified moan escaped Eddie's throat as he gaped at the cuff around my wrist. His mouth dropped open and his chin started to quiver. Help me! I wailed, thrashing my arm frantically, tugging at the chain. Get me out of this! Eddie turned white as a ghost. I couldn't keep a straight face any longer. I started to laugh, and I slid the handcuff off my wrist. Gotcha back, I jeered. That's for stealing my camera. Now we're even. I... 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 Eddie sputtered. His dark eyes glowered at me angrily. I really thought you were hurt. He muttered. Don't do that again, Sue. I mean it. I stuck my tongue out at him. I know it wasn't very mature. My brother doesn't always bring out the best in me. Alright. So that that is a, a an R.L. Stein cliffhanger right there. There's one every literally every single chapter. It's pretty great. Alright, our final dramatic reading is the uh, beautiful image of the death of the ski slope, which we described in such loving detail. Now you can experience it. Uh, I'm going to be reading this one. Come on, let's ski, Adriana urged, calling everyone to the shed. We want to go into town for dinner, right? It's getting late. I gazed down the ski slope. Not very difficult, I decided. Not too steep. A straight path between two rows of tall fir trees. Pretty easy, even for a beginner like me. Who's going first? Laura called, hurrying away from Ivan. I saw Aaron step out of the boys' cabin and come jogging across the snow. Aaron was an expert skier. This slope was baby stuff to him, I knew. We have to go one at a time, Adriana told us. The slope is so narrow. I turned to see Aaron dragging Ivan over to the skis. We have a volunteer, Aaron shouted. Ivan scowled angrily and pulled away from Aaron. I saw Aaron react with surprise. Ivan spit in the snow and muttered something to Aaron. Hey, what's your problem? Aaron asked Ivan. Laura had walked over to Justine, and the two of them were talking, serious expressions on their faces. Who's going first? someone asked. I think Martha goes first, Adriana replied. She grinned at me and handed me a pair of skis. Why me? I demanded. You are the champion sledder, Adriana declared. A few kids cheered. You've won the first spot, Adriana continued. Are you kidding? I fell off my sled three times, I exclaimed. I nearly smashed into the tree. I'm going second, Sean announced. Good, then you can rescue me when I break my leg, I told him. I bent to fasten the skis. My heart started to pound. I had only skied two or three times before in my whole life. I really didn't have much confidence. I knew I was about to make a total fool of myself in front of my friends. I couldn't get the straps right. I turned and saw Adriana and Justine and a couple other kids watching me. 
Somebody else go first, I shouted. These straps are messed up. Okay, here goes, I heard Sean yell. I fixed the straps, pulled them tight. Then I stood up in time to watch Sean start his run. I moved to the edge of the hill, the skis crunching in the crusty snow. Sean pushed off with both poles and started going down. It was steeper than I thought. He bent forward and picked up speed. His skis slid over a bump. He kept his balance and swooped down faster. And then, up ahead of him, I saw the silver line. A silver line across the ski run. So slender. A glimmer. A glimmering thread against the white snow. Shimmering in the sunlight, it cut straight across Sean's path. I stared at it, puzzled, trying to figure it out. What was it? It was as if someone had taken a silver pen and drawn a straight line across the ski run from tree to tree. A silver line. It took me so long to realize it was a wire. It took me so long to realize that someone had strung a silver wire across the ski path. It took me so long there was no time to scream. No time to warn Sean. No time to move. And then, a second later, maybe less, Sean skied into it. The wire caught him at the throat, cut through his neck. A straight line, a silver line. It cut through his neck. Bright red splashed on both sides of the silver line. I still didn't move. I didn't believe it. No one moved. We all stood at the edge, staring down in silence. The silver wire sliced off Sean's head. I watched his body continue to ski. The skis carried it for several yards before it collapsed. And Sean's head bounced onto the snow. And emptied out, emptied out, emptied out. Staring up at us. Puddling the snow, dark red. So, that was that. I still feel like it was a wasted opportunity to have that moment in this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like it could have been done so much better. <laughs> that was a pretty great and hilarious death scene. That probably shouldn't have been as hilarious as it was, but, you know, what can you do? It was only funny to you because you like it when children die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, from there, let's move on to one of our favorite games, Would You Rather? So to start off, would you rather lose your memory because of your weird, murdery friend hypnotizing you, or lose your memory because you're secretly a fugitive from the past? I would rather be a fugitive from the past, I think, because there's, like, way more, there's way more possibility there, other than just, like, being the target of some crazed 16-year-old's, like, homicidal tendencies. Yeah, if you're a fugitive from the past, everyone who's trying to kill you is in the past, not your PFF. So I'll be a secret fugitive from the past. And then also I'll be one step closer to being Sam Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know, like, I feel like fugitive from the past has more of a chance to catastrophically come back to bite you in the ass. But... Your word, weird murdery friend hypnotizing you probably has a closer to home chance of coming back to bite you in the ass. So I guess I will also go with lose your memory because you're secretly a fugitive from the past. All right, next up. Would you rather be shipwrecked on an island with your 13-year-old babysitters or stranded in the future with no friends, family, or means to support yourself in order to avoid being executed? 
I'm going to go for the island, I think, because if there's one thing I know about 13-year-old babysitters is they've always got their babysitting kits, and they are um, they are usually quite likely to be, like, really good at MacGyvering, so they're probably going to get us off that island pretty quick. Um, I would also be on the island with my 13-year-old babysitters, because it only lasts a couple days, and then I get rescued, and then if I was in the future, it would suck. <laughs> I'm I'm tempted I'm tempted by the future one because I mean like it, it could be worse, I guess. But look how awful 2016 is. That's a good point. <laughs> that is a good point. Um It's only gonna get worse from here. So I guess I'll Dictator choose. Trump is gonna take over the universe. <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll, I guess I'll also choose the island. Then you know I'll be stuck with the six the sick four year olds. Whatever. It's not worth the flying cars. <laughs> All right. For our last, would you rather? Would you rather date Ivan, who's sweet but might drive you into a tree, or Aaron, who's hot but might cheat on you with your best friend? I'm probably still gonna. I I, I gotta go Ivan. I I think I'm more attracted to the uh, the sweet but slightly unstable ones. And plus, I can always just um, insist that I drive everywhere. <laughs> I will date Aaron because he's going to date my best friend. I'm going to dump his ass. Then I will date Lara, who is the only sane person in these books who isn't trying to murder or cheat or do anything awful to anyone. Also, she's model hot. <laughs> so, I win. <laughs> I win, would you rather? <laughs> That's another thing that happened in the book that we didn't talk about. There's an extended sequence where Martha drives Laura to get her to a model photo shoot that just is just... She just got a model. Yeah. She got a model. Model's got a mod. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that I would also go with Aaron, um, because I'm not gonna be interested in either of these guys, but if he's cheating on me with my best friend, I could maybe use that to guilt him into, like, buying me things and taking me places, uh, you know, while he feels so bad about that. So, you know, at least then I could get something out of it. Perfect. All right. Uh, from here, we'll go on to Reader's Advisory, where we'll suggest some things to read or watch instead of or in addition to these books. So I'm going to start out by saying that there are a million of these books. If you like this sort of thing, there are a million other R.L. Stein books. There are a million other Goosebumps books. There are a million Christopher Pike books. There are a million other pulpy teen horror novels that came out in the 90s. If you like this shit, there's a lot more out there for you to find. And I will say, uh, this is a recommendation from like 9, 10-year-old Sarah, because uh, 28-year-old Sarah can't quite vouch. But I also remember quite liking the Fear Street Saga trilogy, um, which I think was like how Fear Street happened. So I'm, I'm sad now to know that it was probably written in this same horrific style, uh, which means I will never read it again so I can protect it in my memory. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Um, there's that. And then there's also the Goosebumps uh, TV show, um, which from there I would definitely recommend the Haunted Mask episode. It's a, a true 90s classic. Uh, I would definitely recommend the movie Cabin in the Woods. It really doesn't have that much to do with any of these books. I just think it's great and I think that everyone should watch it. So you should watch that. Uh, I would also recommend a book called The Adoration of Jenna Fox by Mary Pearson. 
It's about a teenage girl who wakes up with no memory in the hospital and uh, has to work out why her friends and family are keeping secrets from her and what exactly happened in the accident that uh, ended up with her in the hospital in the first place. Um, most of, actually all of the rest of my, um, no, that's not true. I have one book on here. Um, so if you need something fun to watch, if you want time traveling children, there's the other 90s classic, A Kid in King Arthur's Court. If you are looking for a group of friends and a murdery secret, there's I Know What You Did Last Summer. And if you're also looking for kind of that, that closed group where somebody has to be the murderer, the classic Clue is a great movie to watch. And I would also point you towards And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie, who, if you would like higher quality with a large volume of fun murder mysteries to read, um, obviously check out Agatha Christie. Um, I'm sort of, this is sort of a recommendation. It's, it's sort of a, I guess, a making you aware that this book exists. Uh, this book called The Girl on the Train, which I did not actually like very much. Uh, Becca did not actually like very much, but it was pretty well reviewed and I think well liked overall, but it does deal with a lot of the themes of these two books, uh, memory loss, uh, infidelity, murder, all sorts of things. So maybe check that out if it sounds like it's up your alley. I would recommend When You Reach Me by Rebecca Steed, which is one of my favorite books of all time, which is about time travel and latchkey kids in New York in the 70s, and it's just great. The Southern Reach Trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer is a really creepy adult sci-fi horror series that, um, kind of thematically feels like it should fit in this episode, even if you can't necessarily draw a straight line, at least not without spoiling some of the stuff that happens later on in the books. But it's really excellent, and you should definitely check those out. And um, the Riverman series by Aaron Starmer uh, is just really great, a really great middle grade-ish, older middle grade uh, series sort of about time travel, sort of about friendship, sort of about murder, not really about any of those things. It's very hard to describe, but you should definitely read it. I don't really have many books to recommend, but as far as viewing, if you like time travel, you should check out Doctor Who, which I'm sure everyone in the world already has, or at least everyone listening to this podcast. Uh, it does time travel, and also there are definitely some episodes that do spooky scary a lot better than this, while still being compelling and entertaining and not a drag all the way through. If you like memory loss, there's the film Memento, which is a neat thriller told from the perspective of someone with memory loss. If you like both those things, you can watch Quantum Leap. <laughs> where anything <laughs> that Sam does not remember about the past is quickly hand-waved away and explained to him because of his quote-unquote Swiss cheese memory that was caused by the time travel. And if you just like murderous teens, watch all the Scream movies, which have still, to me, stood up as ridiculous no, spooky so romps. Good. And they're especially so the good. one they just made, Scream 4, that which really just made it was like still like five years ago probably now. But like I was amazed that they revisited this oh. thing that was like my favorite when I was a teen. I saw that movie I saw all those movies in theaters multiple times. And then Scream 4 was great. And you should definitely watch them. Yeah, I love also them. definitely and if you're a horror nerd or a blooming horror nerd both Scream and Cabin in the Woods um, are a little bit of meta mm -hmm. um, 
commentaries on the genre as well, which I always love. I love anything that is aware of its own self. And I'll add one more thing uh, before you can move, we'll move on and you can check out more of these on the website, which is, we mentioned it earlier, but the 90s TV show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes! Of course, of course. on Netflix, I believe. <laughs> we just rewatched it. That shit stood up so fucking well. We're in our 30s. We still freaked out by some <laughs> Most of, of them are still scary. There are some that are just kind of goofy, scary, yeah. but it, they're still definitely very charming to watch and revisit if you haven't seen them since you were a kid. Yeah, I will say that I did check for them on Netflix when we started the episode, and I think they're off for now. Oh, no. Um, which is a bummer, but I but still They could have... still be on Hulu or Amazon, so check. Just look check. everywhere yes. you can. Yes. And because if you watch they're great. the one with the, the hidden pool in the high school that was built over an Indian burial ground, just know that it gave me nightmares. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can check out those and some more that we didn't mention on our website and our reader's advisory page. For now, we're going to move on to candy pairing, where much like a restaurant might recommend a fine wine to go with your meal, we are going to recommend a candy to go with these books. I will start off. Um, my candy pairing is the Creepy Crawlers Gummy Machine. Creepy Crawlers was a, like, rubber bug factory thing that you could buy in the 90s, and then they made one that was for candy, which was basically the same thing, but repackaged with, like, gelatin instead of rubber. Uh, it's another product of the 90s that wasn't as scary as intended then, and really isn't as scary as intended now. I would have to recommend my favorite 90s treat, the uh, Warhead Sour Candies. Um, they were something that in the 90s was fun for the experience and worth toughing it out, but once you're grown up, you just... Uh, you don't need that anymore in your life. <laughs> Mine might still be available. I'm not sure. I haven't seen them in a while, but I know they were definitely around when I was a kid. And it's the caramel apple Tootsie Pops, which were green apple lollipops that then had caramel-esque something squirted onto it. So, like, it was actually, because it was not, like, a chewy caramel. It was a crackly kind of hard candy caramel. But it wasn't, like, fully engulfed in it. It was just, it was, like, it was half in the packaging and then someone just went, and that was a little squirt of caramel on there. And it was kind of gross. And much like these books, you know, maybe the uh, green apple lollipop at the center of it was worth exploring, but not worth making your way through that crusty caramel to get to. <laughs> all right. Excellent choices all around. Now we'll move on to a variation on our favorite game. Instead of the Rock Paper Snicked, today we will be playing the Rock Paper Swanson. I will start off by telling who Dwayne the Rock Johnson would play if he were in this book. Then Rebecca will tell us who Ron Swanson would play if he were in this book. And Sarah will choose which one she thinks is better, or paper, which is to leave the book as it is. So, if The Rock was in this book, he would be one of the cops that shows up to investigate the random mountainside beheading. Unlike the other cops, he won't randomly give up because there isn't enough evidence or whatever. Uh, <laughs> even though everyone who could have possibly killed that kid is in the same place. Instead of intimidating them, he would calmly talk to each of the kids until a picture of the whole story became clear. Because, seriously, a bunch of high school juniors who can't even hide a secret love affair successfully covered up a murder? I do not believe that. Uh, and neither does The Rock. 
Eventually, uh, after some coddling, The Rock realizes that Adriana is being really unnecessarily antagonistic in her description of Sean's assault on Martha. And it doesn't take long for him to put the pieces together from there, especially after Ivan tearfully confesses to putting the wire up in the first place. Uh, Adriana is put into therapy, and Martha's memory isn't fucked up forever. If Ron Swanson were in this book, he would be the caretaker at the cabin they stay at. He would be very wary of these youths staying at the cabin without adult supervision and probably keep an eye on them throughout their stay from another separate cabin that he owned that no one knows about. (laughs) Watching on the hill with binoculars, he would see Ivan put up the wire and immediately remove it. He would then confront these hormone-ridden teenagers and explain that this kind of tomfoolery was a good way for someone to end up dead, son. (laughs) Everyone who was a creepo, which apparently is half the people in this cabin, would be sobered by this confrontation and his imposing mustache. He would then explain that they had two options. If they wanted to spend time in the woods, they could stay at the cabin with him, where they would hunt their own food, cook it over a campfire, and enjoy the peace and quiet of the great outdoors. Or they could call their parents. Everyone calls their parents and goes home. No one gets killed. Martha actually finishes her portfolio without the distraction of memory loss, murder, and assholes, and goes on to study art at college as she planned, where she makes new friends who are not murderers, or people who crash cars into trees for funsies, or who secretly lie about dating behind her back. But they may or may not be lizard people. (laughs) Um, I definitely think that Ron Swanson is the appropriate addition to this book, (laughs) if only because... uh, it, it does lower the body count of teenagers. Yeah, we don't we don't need this kind of nonsense. I mean, I have to agree. That was, that was a pretty that was a pretty good show by Ron Swanson. <laughs> he hates that he has to interject himself into these children's lives, but he also cannot allow people to die on his mountain. <laughs> All right. From there, we'll move on to the moral of the story. So, my moral of the story is. If large swatches of your memory are missing, maybe it's best not to question it. Uh, My moral of the story is that Chekhov's pickpocketing saves lives. My moral of the story is 10-year-olds don't require much to be entertained. And that's the real lesson that we've all learned here today. (laughs) And why aren't we all millionaires? Don't know. We can write short declarative sentences, even me, and I suck. (laughs) Ugh. As soon as I finish this PhD, I'm just going to start churning out children's nice. horror novels. <laughs> uh, so as Duarte is on vacation with Renata in a sadness cave somewhere, we are seating Duarte's corner to our pet shark slash son, Clopperhage, for Clopperhage's corner. Clopperhage, what do you have to think about this book? <laughs> Alright, I, I, I can see now why both of these books would be improved by having them be told near the water so that sharks could jump out and kill everyone, but uh, really... I just saw the other day, uh, I don't remember why, I was definitely on the Wikipedia page that was like every shark movie ever made, and there was one that was called Avalanche Shark, where a shark literally comes out of the snowy mountain. <laughs> 
And I also agree that that's how Sean should have actually been murdered and probably half the rest of the people at that camp. Let's be real, like, everyone except Martha and Lara should have just been eaten by a snow shark. Yeah, I feel like that's really the good compromise. Yeah. Clapperhage is to have, instead of having them all happen in the ocean, which would be awkward, just have the shark jump out of that Be a lake. snow shark. Snow sharks are real. Yep. I'm a scientist. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your input, Clapperhage. We appreciate it. And speaking of the Sadness Cave, let's take a moment to check in with Renata on her Sadness Cave vacation. Renata? Hi guys, I'm here in my sadness cave, and I think I'm gonna stay in here for like a while. There were some skeletons having a barbecue outside. It's very spooky. Um, I think I also saw some kind of evil puppet or something. I don't really know what's going on, so I'm just gonna stay here in my cave and hope it all kind of is resolved in a timely, episodic fashion. Uh, I hope you guys are all staying safe out there. If you're not, I would maybe recommend you get some kind of ferocious house cat to look after you. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, thanks so much for letting us know what's going on, and we hope to have you back again soon. So with that said, do any of us have any closing thoughts about these books? I'm glad we didn't read more of them. Same. Same. Yeah, that's basically... When you were like, I read this book, this Goosebumps book, as a kid in a meal. It took me like three days to read this Goosebumps book because I was so annoyed about it. I read both of them at work yesterday before lunch. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah, I read them both Saturday night after watching Goosebumps, or after watching Ghostbusters, which I would actually recommend instead of Goosebumps. Bumps. Yeah, why are you listening to this podcast? Go watch Ghostbusters right now. Right I would off. be watching Ghostbusters, but I had to sit here and record a podcast with you. I still haven't seen it. It's your life <gasps> choices ruining my life. I'm the worst. <sighs> get, be- get better friends. <laughs> <laughs> I hope a snow shark eats you. <laughs> <laughs> or a real shark at the Cape this weekend. <laughs> I'll have to check my shark tracker app and see if there's any sharks nearby. (laughs) All right. On that note, uh, you can find our podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash the worst bestsellers. You can find us at Twitter at worst bestseller with no S. You can find our Goodreads group on Goodreads where there's uh, threads for every episode. So you can talk about episodes. You can talk about upcoming books. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, and if you do, please rate and review us. That pops us up in the charts and makes it easier for other people to find us. And if you don't, unfortunately, we will have to make you ski down the hill first. (laughs) You can find me personally on Twitter at 14across. You can find me personally on Twitter at ginthusiastic, like gin, the alcoholic beverage, and you're enthusiastic about it. My account is locked. So I'll probably vet you before I let you follow me. But if I see that you're following Worst Bestsellers or Kate and Renata, then you're good. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kick to the Stairs. We'll be back in two weeks with uh, another classic nostalgia flashback summer installment about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And we can't wait to see you there.
Thanks. Bye. 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 I think we slim we streamlined it. I think it was good on the second take.